Listen, I speak as one of many who has seen. Everyone is telling the stories, though few understand what it means. Eyes wide, jaws drop. Now we write so nothing's forgot. I speak as one of many who has seen. Everyone's trying to tell the story, but don't yet know what it means. We saw it ourselves, eyes wide, jaws drop. Now we write it so nothing's forgot. Like back in the day, our heroes knew the power of stories and what they could do. How their own memories of pain and victory would become a force to shape our history. When the sun stood still and the sea was split, when donkeys talked and the bush was lit, eyes wide, jaws drop, they wrote it for us so nothing's forgot. Even now, do you hear an echo of the voices all around town? So I picked up my pen and wrote it down with as perfect detail as I could give my moments with Jesus and how he lives. As a doctor who gave up medicine for miracles to follow this man who they called heretical, eyes wide, jaws drop. I write it for you, Theo, so you cannot be stopped. Within a shadow of a doubt, these words are true. It's a gift to believe, to feel and know what we've seen. Eyes wide, jaws drop. Now we write it so nothing's forgot. Well, let me just begin by saying good morning again, but I want to welcome those of you who are joining us in our contemporary service right now or online. I'm really glad you're here. We are on a journey together this year called According to Luke. We are learning the life story of Jesus in a biography called The Gospel According to Luke. I'd love during this series, this journey together, for all of us to grow more and more comfortable reading the Bible together. So if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, if you'd like to borrow one, our ushers are going to come up the aisles in both of our worship venues. Please go ahead and raise your hand at them or flag them down somehow. You can borrow that along with lots of other people and use that during the worship service today. I'll give you page numbers and make it easy to find. And then you can put that on the shelf in the back of either of our worship venues uh, after our worship services today. The passage we're going to be reading today is a passage we often read at Christmas time. It's a story that's more familiar uh, from that time. But today we're going to learn a different theme from that story. We get a chance to pay attention to something different than we often pay attention to at Christmas time. We're going to learn about how it is that God makes his people a people and not just persons, a community and not just individuals who happen to be nearby one another. I think this is a truth that I've been trying to learn and understand, wrap my head and heart around over the course of my life. I think it's something that I probably still, I'm sure, I still don't understand it as well as I should. I can remember the first time that I think a penny began to drop on this and I learned the truth of how it is that we exist as community and not just individuals. And I kind of learned it in a negative way, actually. I must have been about third grade or so. I'm guessing I was a kid growing up in my neighborhood back in Cleveland, Ohio. And I used to run around with the other neighborhood boys and we'd ride our bikes around the neighborhood, usually farther than our parents told us we were allowed to go or places we weren't supposed to go. And there was a particular dynamic that was maybe not so helpful to me, and that is I was the youngest kid in that group, which means that the older boys in that group, they had already thought of and discovered other ways to get in trouble than I had figured out already. Right? And I'm not saying I was an unwilling participant. I'm not trying to play the innocent here. I'm just saying they were better at it than I was. And so I learned some things from them that I probably shouldn't have learned. And, and I remember this one time that we were doing something that we shouldn't have been doing, and I think I remember kind of what it was, but I'm not going to say because I don't want any of our kids today to get any ideas. So I was just, we were doing something we shouldn't have been doing, and we got caught by somebody, I don't even remember how, and kind of got in trouble. 
And I remember talking with my mom about it afterward, and my mom told me something that I, I have never forgotten. I was protesting my innocence. I was saying it wasn't me that did whatever it was that we did, and it was somebody else. I was there, but I didn't really do it. And I, I mean, I don't know if she had any reason to believe me or not. I hope I told the truth most of the time. I don't really remember exactly what it was. But more than knowing whether to believe me or not, she didn't care whether I was the one who did it or not because she taught me this phrase, guilt by association, guilt by association. Whether you were the one exactly who did that or not, it was your group who did it. It was you people who did it, and so you did it. And it's your reputation, and it's part of what you did. And I think I've been learning that in deeper and deeper ways as I've grown older and older. Reputation alone is a very important thing, but there's more to it than that. The, the things that we do together, the relationships that we form and the pattern of our shared life is how we become who we become, right? We do it together. And I'd like to ask you to consider who are your people? Who's your community? Who's your tribe? Who are the people in relationship with whom you are becoming who you are becoming. Some of our people, some of our community, we never choose. We have no say in the matter. It is simply a fact of life that is handed to us, either at our birth or somewhere else in life. Family is one good example, but not the only one. You mostly did not pick your family members, right? For good or ill, they're your people, and they are people in relationship with whom you are becoming who you are becoming. Other people we choose. We make some conscious choices. These people are our friends. These are the people we spend our free time with. This is our community that we choose to be a part of. Who's your people? With whom are you becoming whom you are becoming? Let me ask that question to just a subset of our church family for a moment. Those of you who are parents, if you have children, who are your children's people? Who's their community? Who is it that in relationship with them, your children are becoming who they're becoming? teaching them values, what's important, what's right, what's good, who's shaping their practices and their values. Do you know? Sometimes we don't even know. Are you happy about it? Is it good? Is it beneficial? Whether it's for children, if you have them, or for all of us, when you think about who your people are, who your tribe is, who your community is, how much of that is something that you are doing on purpose? How much of your community are you forming with some purpose in mind? How much are you doing it on purpose? And how much of it is just happening to you and you're just letting it happen to you? I want to talk to you today about what we find in the gospel according to Luke, what we find in the story of Jesus' life that teaches us about this and helps us with it, and I think maybe even gives us some steps forward in the practice of community together as God's people. So open your Bibles with me. I want to share some things with you. Right off the top, you can just open to Luke chapter 1. It's on page 1499 of your Quest Bibles. We're kind of a, a little ways in to chapter 1. And while you are turning to that page, let me just settle a context for you and remind you where we have come. Last week, we began by seeing how God moved into the world, how God moved to turn, really, world history. And he did it by moving into the lives of some individual people. He moved into the lives of a, a couple, an elderly, childless couple whose names were Zechariah and Elizabeth, both descended from the priestly tribe of the Israelite nation, of the Israelite family. And it was Zechariah's turn. He was on duty to serve in leading worship in the temple. And all God's people were gathered together in worship. And it was in that context where God moved with the implication, your move. God moved and announced the birth of a child to this family that his name would be John, and he would be a cousin of Jesus, and he would be a prophet and a forerunner of Jesus. 
In today's reading, we're going to see God doing a parallel but different thing. God's going to send an angel again. God sent an angel, a messenger to Zechariah last week. This week, he's going to send an angel, not to an elderly male priest in the temple in Jerusalem, but he's going to send the same angel Gabriel to a young unmarried woman named Mary who lived in the Galilean outpost called Nazareth. Let's read this story together. It's Luke chapter 1. It's starting in verse 26. Again, it's on page 1499 of your Quest Bibles. Here's how the story goes. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so this announcement that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a child was coming true, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Remember that phrase. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. It's the beginning of every angelic speech, right? Fear not. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. And he'll be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There's David again. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants. His kingdom will never end. Now, that story is one that we often read at Christmas time. If you are familiar with the Christmas story, that may sound familiar from that time. If you aren't familiar with the Christmas story, if you don't know that Christmas story yet, make sure you stick around for three months. We're going to come back to that around Christmas time and learn a lot of important things. But today, I want to pay attention to a theme in this story that we don't always get to pay attention to. One thing that we begin to see in this passage, and I'm going to show you a little bit larger context, the gospel writer, the biographer of Jesus, whose name was Luke, is almost obsessively clear with us that Jesus is a descendant of David. He really wants us to know this. Let me show you and explain what we can learn from this. In the passage we just read, it happens twice, and then there's a bunch more. All right, in Luke 1, 27, it's page 1499, Jesus', Jesus earthly father Joseph is a descendant of David. We skip down a few verses in verse 32, and the angel is promising to Mary regarding Jesus that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And then in the next verse, David was a king. David was the great Israelite king who lived a thousand years before Jesus, like the high point of Israelite history, and God promised to reestablish his throne. It's gonna happen in Jesus. And Luke is saying, this is the guy, it's Jesus. And he'll be a king, and so verse 33 says he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And then if you turn the page to 169, this is page 1500, Zechariah, the father of John, says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then if we go forward again a little bit, in chapter 2, verse 4, in the story of Jesus' birth, it says that Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, up in the north, to Judea in the south, where? To Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Luke is trying to make this clear for us. And if we go down a few more verses, in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, the angels are announcing to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, and they don't say, hey, Jesus has been born, he's over there. They announce, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Are you getting the idea that Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is a descendant of David? that he's going to be a king, right? And do you know what kings have? I mean, the right answer is probably everything. That's what kings have. But what I want to talk to you about today is how kings have kingdoms. Kings have kingdoms. If a king has no kingdom, I don't know if that king is really a king. Is want to be king, future king, hope to be king, used to be king, something like that. Kings have kingdoms. They have nations. They have 
peoples. They have a community over which they are the king. This understanding was pervasive in the cultures of the biblical world. The ancient Greeks thought of themselves as one big kingdom, one big family, as a matter of fact, and they thought that everybody else in the world was the other family, and that family were all barbarians and slaves, and we are the noble Greek family. People who were members of the Roman Empire, citizens of the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean world, thought of themselves as being part of one household, one extended family unit, with Caesar as the father and master of that household unit. The Jewish people thought of themselves as one large extended family, and loosely they were all descended from the, the tribes of Jacob, from the children of Jacob. And this is the context in which we hear things like the promise of Gabriel to Mary that Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Some translations, including the one we read today, say the descendants of Jacob. They're trying to spell it out for us, but what's being translated is a singular noun, the house of Jacob. This, I think, is why the angel Gabriel announced to Zechariah last week that the son that he and Elizabeth would have would be a forerunner of Jesus, and his job would be to prepare or to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Not just persons, but a people, a people who were ready for the Lord. When we read in the Bible about God's work in creating a, a saved community and bringing salvation to the world, I think that according to the teaching of Jesus and in the imaginations of all of his earliest followers and the writers of all the books of the Bible, that it is much more God's plan to create a community share of salvation life. who share the hope of Christ okay. together I'm now I'm just going to come forever. out and say it. Go. than it is for God to create a bunch of saved individuals who all have the same hope now and forever and who kind of share the same airspace together, have addresses near one another, worship in the same building. I think that it is the plan of God and the imagination of the biblical writers to create a community of salvation who share the hope and the way of Jesus together now and forever. The distinction between a community and a people is something that has been hard for me to understand over the years. I've been trying to learn it, and I want to tell you a story to try to illustrate that. I hope this will be helpful to you. When I was in my early 20s, a couple of decades ago, I had a friend who had just returned from living and working in Japan for a couple of years. And this was an opportunity for me to ask a stupid question that I had been wanting to ask for a long time. I had always wondered, why is it that the culture in which I grew up, where we eat like, I don't know, chicken or steak or pork or vegetables or whatever, and we use forks and knives and spoons in most Western cultures. But in many Asian cultures, where they eat lots of rice and other fish and things go with it, they use chopsticks. And so I had to ask my ignorant question, how is it that the culture that eats the most of these tiny little grains of rice invented the chopsticks? Like, I can't possibly do that, right? And I know that if you grow up doing that, if you're good at that, like, if you grow up doing that, you're going to be good at it. But I'm like, why wouldn't that culture have invented the spoon? That would have made sense to me, right? So I asked her this question, and I, I can't remember if she laughed in my face or if she laughed silently, but she, what she explained to me was, I think, I think what you're not understanding is that for people in Japan, which is the culture that she knew, there's hardly any understanding of an individual grain of rice. There's almost no such thing as a grain of rice. Rice is much more like this. If you can see this bowl right here, this is a big mass of sticky rice, and I'm holding it sideways, and it's not even falling out, right? And truthfully, this right here is kind of a mess. And this is delicious, all right? This is still waiting to become what it's supposed to become. This is not yet what it could be, and it's harder than it has to be. This is how it's supposed to be. And if I pry a little bit loose right here, I can have a little snack. A little soy sauce on there would be perfect. This is a mess. This is delicious. 
This is life together in community. This is a bunch of individual stuff all occupying the same space, right? And I think that what the Bible says to us about how it is that we live life in Christ together makes much more sense in a bowl of sticky rice than it does in a bunch of individual grains. Let me give you an example. There's a really key word, especially in the New Testament, by which Jesus and many of his earliest followers teach us about the character of life together in Christ. And that word is one another. We are always being taught how it is that we share life with and treat one another. Jesus taught his followers and teaches us today to love one another. We are taught to pray for one another. We are taught explicitly in the letters of the early church to bear with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be of one mind with one another, specifically to have the mind of Christ. We are taught to confess our sins one to another. I think that much of what the Bible teaches us about the Christian life is about how we one another one another. But it's hard to one another one another unless you're one with some others, right? Should I say that again? Much of what the New Testament teaches us about life together in Christ is about how we one another one another, but it's hard to one another one another unless you're one with some others. Around here, we confess the value this way. We say that Jesus makes us family. He puts us together into a community of salvation of brothers and sisters in Christ who know the gracious heart of our Heavenly Father, who are brothers and sisters in Christ because we are brothers and sisters of Christ. And we're trying to grow in that value of life together as sticky rice, not just stuck together for any set of values, but for the way of Jesus together, for the hope and way of Jesus together. And we try to grow in that value in all kinds of ways in our church family. We try to build interpersonal connection and community before, during, and after our worship services in our worship life. Also in our service partnerships, whether we travel to Haiti or serve here in Ramsey County or serve in our neighborhood or serve in, on service teams right here with one another. We try to build relationship and community in those environments. But probably the, the best, most impactful environment that we have in which we can learn to do the things that Jesus taught us to do, in which we can learn how better to one another one another in the way of Jesus is in our growth groups. And I've told you stories before about my experiences in our growth groups and what's that, what that's meant to me and what that's been like. I'd like to share with you a different story today. And so this week, we filmed an interview with one of our growth groups. I think this group has been together for about six months now, maybe six months to a year. And we put together a video that's part of our Heart of the Story video series. We've got kind of a whole video library that we share with you from time to time and is available online that are the stories of what God is doing in the lives of us and the lives of our people together. And I want you to hear what God is doing in the life of this growth group. So if you would, please, turn your attention and uh, give them a listen. Uh, share, share about what like, your angle was as far as saying, yes, I'm, I'm going to try growth group. Why did you say yes to that? I think my arm was twisted. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think that um, I need that support. You know, I'm new at this, and um, I need some help. So I think these guys is, would be great helping me. I appreciate that honesty. I always avoided, we used to come small groups. And if someone would come near me, and or I could even see them from the the hallway coming near me, I would go the other way because I knew what they wanted. <laughs> so um, coming here, I thought that it's time. It's time to uh, get involved and get to know more people on a more intimate base. And uh, it is really working that way. It's been more than fun. Um, we went to Catalyst and noticed the improvement it made just in our weekly interactions with each other and out in the community. So we decided we want to join a small group and I jokingly said one morning that I would love to be in Joe and Sherry's small group 
um, here we are. <laughs> Very cool. Let's talk more about the sense of belonging that you maybe have felt, hopefully have felt through being in a growth group or about to be in a growth group, this, the sense of, um, yeah, belonging to a smaller group and being known in this church. You want care to comment about that? Yeah, I would comment on that because I think it's easy to, well, it's hard to go to church, actually. It's hard to get up every Sunday morning and go to church, but it's easy to be disconnected, to come into church. You look around, you don't really see anybody you know very well. Everybody's talking to everybody. It's hard to feel like you belong, and so you tend to be one of the first people that leaves after service. And I think being in a small group, it doesn't take a lot of people to make you feel connected. And if there's just a few people that you know, you catch their eyes coming into church or after the service or during the service, and it gives you a feeling that this is where we should be. It makes church a very warm and welcoming and much richer experience. And especially when the people that you have in your group are people that together you're following Jesus, together you're learning about Jesus. And so it's brought this to a whole new level for me in terms of trying to be Christ-centered. So, and I'm not perfect, I'm a long ways from it, but it's taken me a long ways. Anybody else want to comment on belonging, being known? Well, I just look at it as an expansion of kind of your family. You, um, you can be very um, intimate in your discussions. Um, we all have similar situations, things that have happened to us. And you don't know that. You think that it only happens to me. I can only be the one with the problems. My family is the only one with the problems. Um, there's a lot of problems. And we share. And we pray. And um, it's just a good, um, you can call it a tool. It's a tool that uh, helps you get through what you need to get through. We have nine of them. We're tools? You're, tools. You're, we're all tools for each other. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> One thing cool I've noticed is you all tend to sit kind of together at worship too. Like you just find each other and whether you sit by each other or not, you find each other after worship I've noticed. I love seeing that, that there's that continuous like wanting to support one another um, outside of your growth group times. Uh, let's talk about the element of care that you experienced in your group, especially in providing care for one another in hard times. Will you guys comment more about that? Well, I had an uh, incident and I was panicking and going crazy and I called um, Sherry and she calmed me right down. I wasn't thinking, but she helped me see the big picture and gave me a lot of suggestions and it worked out, so yeah. Wow. Numerous times uh, within the last year, different things have come up, whether it be health concerns, big changes, um, small changes, questions, doubt. And one of the first things that I've ended up doing is sending an email out just asking for prayer or guidance. And every single time, everybody from the group has responded um, with words of encouragement, scripture, prayer. Um, and it's just, it's a great feeling to know that you have that. Uh, and with me living, my nearest family member is two hours away. Um, this is my family down here. So to have that comfort, that level of security, that close, that is there no matter what time of day, I, it's a great feeling. What would you guys say to someone um, 
describing how life is different or better together than trying to follow Jesus alone. How is it different or better together? I think it's better together because for me, I know very little about Jesus and the Bible, but I'm not afraid to talk about that with them. You know, so it's easier in a small group to ask questions and not think you're asking, you know, stupid questions or whatever. So I think that'll be best for me is to be in a small group so that I can ask the questions, don't feel bad, and learn what I need to learn. I would say just on top of the feeling of, you know, it being the Bible thumper mentality, I think one of my concerns was how much more can I get than what I'm getting on a Sunday. Um, you know, because I, I tend to think I mostly actively listen to what Steve or one of the other speakers are saying. And it kind of, in the past, I've, I've dabbled here and there, and it was like, I'm not getting much out of this. I, I could be spending my time doing something else. Um, but I think when you find the right fit and you find the right group of people to support you, the growth aspect of the group is really true because as you have discussions, we've alluded to it earlier, you have different point of views that might start having you think a different way or open up your mind to a better or a more advanced interpretation of what the Bible's saying. And then as you can see it impacting somebody's life on a personal level, um, or maybe even your own life on a personal level, you start becoming more and more engaged in it. And I think that the smaller setting and the ability to have your voice heard or hear voices around you instead of that one voice in front, it really opens up the opportunity to, to grow and to learn more. This is a, it's an opportunity. A growth group is an opportunity. It's not anything negative. Um, and if you're opportunistic, join a group. You'll find, you, you won't find what we found until you get into one. And it's, it's um, enlightening, it's building, it's loving. It's a lot of things that you never thought it could be. We are more similar than different. And you don't know until you take that chance, take that leap and try something, get into a group. And the benefit is you're not, I mean, you're not tied into it, but the ultimate long-term benefit is it's really kind of insurance throughout the week to, to know you're going to have a group that's going to be there for you and support you mm -hmm. and laugh with you, joke with you. And not to point out the obvious, but I'm much younger than my... Yeah, <laughs> my it doesn't cohort. stop. But... Yeah, you must be talking it. about you. Yeah. It's, it's great because we don't feel like we're any less valued because of our age difference or it's a community and it's an opportunity no matter what your background is whether you're strong in your faith or new in your faith whether you're retired whether you're newly trying to seek a career you have a family you're empty nesters the really the bottom line of it is you're all trying to grow in your faith and grow in your ability to help the community and that's just a good good feeling and it's an opportunity for anybody within the church and it's something that I would strongly encourage because the difference it's made in our lives is impactful on just a home level but even I think in a community and a work-based level it's made a change.
Don't feel kind of like a conversation? No. No. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't. Asking all these stinking right. questions. <laughs> Joe, you talk. That all right. was good. So that was a good practice run, Donna. We're going to go through the. Oh, y'all on y'all own now. I'm leaving. <laughs> she said she's not going to say anything, and she starts us. I know. Yeah, because it was like, oh, let's just get this going. <laughs> of brothers and sisters in Christ, where you can know and be known, love and be loved, serve and be served, and grow together with one another in the hope and the way of Jesus. That's what our growth groups are supposed to be. That's what church is supposed to be, and growth groups are an environment where we practice that one with another. Practically speaking, our growth groups are Groups of usually about 6 to 12 adults, oftentimes there's some kids involved. Many of our growth groups are intergenerational. I love it when that happens. I love it when we can support and encourage and learn from one another across different seasons of life back and forth. Most of our growth groups meet in homes, either in the home of one person in the group who hosts it or a lot of them trade it around. There's usually food involved because in Minnesota it's like the sixth love language. It's great to eat together. We learn how to pray together. We learn how to read the Bible together. We serve one another. We pray for one another. We support one another. We bear with one another. We bear one another's burdens. It's an environment in which we learn to live the life together that Jesus teaches us to live. We learn how to one another, one another. If you are interested in joining a growth group, if you think, yep, I'm ready for that next step now. Finally, I'm ready for that. And there's about 300 people in our church who are part of growth groups already. But if you are not part of one yet and you'd like to try it, in two weeks on Sunday afternoon, October 1st, 11.45 in the morning, actually, after worship, we've got a one-hour event called the Connection Event. It's designed to help you walk away from that event with some people with whom you will try a 10-week starter growth group. And it's our hope that life in Christ will be richer by the end of those 10 weeks in your experience. And if it is not, then you can bail. There's no passive aggressiveness about it. There's an easy off-ramp. And you can try it again later with better people and have a better experience. Just kidding. If you are not ready for a growth group yet, that's okay too. Uh, that's kind of, it is a step. And we have a next step lunch today that has some other steps. We design ministry pathways to try to help all of us grow more deeply in our faith and grow more deeply connected. And today at 11.45, right after this worship service, is the next step lunch. And I'd love to share with you a little bit more about our vision as a church community and some of our other staff and volunteers. We'll talk about some of the next steps that we have together. I'll tell you what. I believe that our world needs the community that God has called us and formed us to be. I really believe that the world needs Christians to come together and be a community of grace, be a community of hope, and be a community of love. I think our world really needs Christians to come together and be an alternative kind of community, deeply formed in the way and the spirit of Jesus Christ together. I want that for me in my life, and I want it for you. And I really, I want it for our world. And then just a second, I'm going to close in prayer together. And in that prayer, among other things, I'm, I'm going to tell God, I'm going to ask God to please work in us and say, God, you lead, we'll follow. We are committed to going where you lead us, and we want to grow in this value that Jesus makes us family and grow in community together with one another. 
but we're all in different places. And some of you may not be ready to take those next steps yet. You may be brand new. This may be your first time here. You're brand new to faith. You're kicking the tires on this whole what does it mean to follow Jesus thing. And if that's where you're at, that's okay. You don't have to do anything you're not ready for. We just want you to take whatever next step Jesus is standing in front of you and saying, hey, come follow me, take this step. But I want to acknowledge one thing, and that is that sometimes we wait to take steps that we're ready enough to take. And I saw a greeting card like three or four years ago. I don't remember even who got it anymore. But on the front of this card was the image of an elderly couple with like a baby rattle and a bassinet. And it said, there's a picture right here. It said, we waited until we were finally ready, right? And the humor of that is supposed to be that unless the angel Gabriel comes to you, right, it's not going to work that way. And so I would say this. Don't wait until you're totally ready, right? If we all waited until we were totally ready to do anything, we would never do anything. But whatever you think that the Spirit of Jesus is nudging your heart and saying, hey, come follow me, take this next step, that's the right next step for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. I thank you that you moved. That you didn't leave us out here on our own. You moved into the world. You've moved into our lives, and you invite our response. And I thank you that you are putting your people back together again as a people. We have this tendency, this brokenness that fractures us, and we live alone even in the midst of crowds. And God, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would heal the things that are inside us and heal the breaks that are between us and that you would put us back together again and that you would knit us together to be a community that shares your life and lives in your joy. And God, we say as you lead, we will follow. You strengthen us, show us the way, open our ears, open the eyes and ears of our hearts and teach us to follow. Lead on, Lord Jesus. We want to go where you lead us to go. We pray in Jesus' name.